This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, all you fine people out in podcast land. Welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I'm excited about this week's episode. I've got J.D. Vance on the show. We are obviously talking in the immediate aftermath of Donald Trump's inauguration. And J.D. is the author of the book Hillbilly Elegy. And the reason I wanted him on this week in particular is that his book has become a go-to book for people trying to think through and understand the Trump phenomenon. It, it came out very early in this election cycle. It's not a political book. It is a story, a memoir of his time growing up in Middletown, Ohio. Um, he's from the Appalachian town of Jackson, Kentucky. And he's really trying to tell the story of the Scots-Irish communities and, and some of the particular obstacles they face to social mobility and some of the particular drivers of modern-day resentments in those communities through his own experience. It was adopted as Trump rose as a explanatory text, which and, and you'll hear this in our interview. I think that's a little bit of an awkward fit for a lot of reasons. It's a very, very fascinating book. It's a good book. I recommend it. But there are ways in which it helps you think about what is going on with Trump. And then there are ways in which it is very, very different than what is happening with Trump. And in some ways, ways in which it is a critique of what led to Trump. J.D. is a graduate of Ohio State University and Yale Law School. He's a Marine who served in Iraq. Um, he's now a principal at a leading Silicon Valley investment firm. He's a very smart and thoughtful guy. There's a lot in here that I think is really interesting. Some things I think I'm going to be thinking about for many weeks, like whether or not sympathy, absent moral judgment is a kind of pity. And there's a lot in here that is about very tricky topics. We're talking not just about a particular white community. We're talking not just about the rise of Trump. We're also talking about political correctness, about social mobility, about identity politics, about microaggressions, about what it takes for people to move forward and ahead in life, about the degree to which respectability politics, the degree to which critiques of personal responsibility should be front and center in the way we we interact and talk with folks from communities who do not have as much and have not done as well. So there is a lot in here to chew on. I think this is a good week here at the dawn of the Trump era to chew on it. As always, a couple quick requests. Check out our other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. There is a whole lot of policy to talk right now and a whole lot to say as Trump sets up his administration. So you want to be listening to that. Please share this podcast. Put it on Facebook, on iTunes, on Twitter. I'm always grateful when you do. And finally, keep sending your 
guest ideas, your feedback to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I am always grateful. All that said, without further ado, here is J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. J.D. Vance, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. So you've written, I think, a book that became, perhaps unexpectedly to you, the book of this election cycle. And I assume that when you began writing it and when you began conceiving of it, it was in a, in a rather different context. If you predicted all this, I'd be very impressed. So, <laughs> so what was that context? Why did you begin writing Hillbilly Elegy? Yeah, so I started to write it because I was very interested and still interested in this question of why the United States doesn't have as much upward mobility as other advanced economies. And it's obviously something that I've lived very personally. And when I started to dig into the literature, one of the things that occurred to me is that there actually are a lot of really good ideas that are sort of out there in the academic space, coming from professors and so forth. But very often that work wasn't getting especially well translated to the public conversation. So I, I thought that if I wrote a very personal book, sort of opening myself up and making it, you know, not just about those studies, but about how these experiences really feel and how they really look when you live them, that I, I could maybe create a bit of a space where we wouldn't be having this conversation about, is it too little money? Is it too much culture that's really driving these problems? But I could have frankly, an honest conversation about the ways that both were important and the way that the ways that both impacted whether a kid like me had much opportunity. So the desire to write the book, that, that's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. It came not from a desire to, to tell the story and to limb a more personal history, but from a concern over the larger question potentially being addressed. Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, I, I really had to be pushed by my editor, by my wife, by my agent, by everyone to sort of make it more and more personal. Because I'm, I think, naturally a very private person. And I, I actually remember the first time I sent the book, the completed book to a third party to try to get a blurb, I told the person, you can't share anything about the book. You can't tell anybody about it because I don't want it getting out there. And my wife sort of told me, JD, the whole point of this is that you want people to read it. So you have to get used to the fact that not just this blurber, but hopefully more people than that are going to read about your personal history. And it's definitely something that I struggled with. But obviously now I think you just sort of through blunt force get used to the fact that a lot of people know really awkward details about your life. I was going to ask that because the book had a more explosive reception, I would imagine, than anticipated. And what is in there is very... Very personal. You speak about your mother's drug addictions. You speak about the procession of, of stepdads, sort of quote unquote, in the book who came through your life. You write about your grandmother setting your grandfather on fire after he came home drunk one too many times. What is the experience of having that been? And what is the reaction, I guess, been from your family? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the personal experience has just been incredibly weird, right? So I do these book talks and I go around and I meet people and I just know that if they have a positive reaction to the book, they know really intimate details about my life. And I sort of deal with it, you know, a lot of times by joking, you know, I'll sort of meet somebody and they'll say, oh, this part really resonated with me. And I'll say, yeah, why don't you tell me a super awkward personal detail about your life so that we're on the same footing and I, that's sort of how I've, I've, I've gone through this past few months. 
on my own. I think, you know, for my family, it's something that I worried a lot about when I was writing the book and the way that I, I tried to deal with that so that it wasn't incredibly awkward from their perspective is to make them part of the writing process. So I didn't just sort of, you know, conjure all of these things up from my own memory. I made sure that they were reading things as I wrote them. I actually interviewed all of my family members about different pieces of their lives. And especially when, when those lives intersected with stuff that I wanted to write about in the book. And so I, I, I think it was helpful that they weren't blindsided by anything that was in it. But it's definitely something that I still worry about quite a bit, how it affects them, whether they feel uncomfortable by the amount of attention that they're getting. The one really positive side of that, I would say, is that especially my sister and my aunt, you know, they get a lot of personal contacts, personal letters, Facebook messages, and so forth from people who really do see them as heroines. And I think that's obviously true. That's certainly how I see them in my own life. But it's been really nice, you know, for my sister, who I think really was a hero in my own life, for people who she's never heard of to reach out to her and say, you know, you did a lot of really good things for your brother, and I hope that you you recognize that and appreciate it. That's been really good. But but beyond that, I would say that it's mostly just been awkward. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I, I can <laughs> I can understand that. I feel I feel like a lot of this kind of writing just ends up being awkward and, and disassociative. <laughs> Uh, I've, I've in this podcast revealed more about myself than I have in other forms of media. And when people want to talk with me about it, I, I mostly vacate my body and mind. Um, <laughs> what, you probably had, I'd, I'd assume, some expectations of the book. And then it hit this political moment in a very unusual way. It came to the book came to my attention after you did an interview with Rod Dreher. I guess I've never sure. said his name out loud. Uh, that had, when I looked at it, and that was a while ago now, more than 70,000 Facebook shares. And then it just kind of kept picking up steam. I, I opened the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and they had folks recommending their, their best books of the year. And Mitch McConnell, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, recommended yours, as I think did one other Republican senator, although I'm not remembering the name. Yeah, Rob Portman. Rob Portman. So yeah. what do you think was the catalytic interaction here? What, what what happened? How do you explain what people saw in the book that made it so essential to, to this moment of upheaval in American life? My suspicion is that there are a few things that were happening simultaneously that really helped the book. So one is just the virality of that social media interview that I did with Rod Dreher. So I didn't expect that that would be so well received. I think Rod told me that it actually crashed the servers of the American Conservative, the website that hosted it. So there was definitely a, a certain amount of just unexpected explosiveness to that interview. And because of the way that social media works, that translated into a lot of book sales and sort of, you know, a lot of publicity from there. And that obviously continued to help book sales in this in this virtuous cycle. Um, part of it is obviously the political moment, right? So Donald Trump became president of the United States, collecting a lot of votes from the white working class. And even though Donald Trump is never mentioned in the book, I, I do think there's a fair amount in the book about the political, the economic, the social frustrations of the white working class. And so if you're just sort of hoping to read about a group of people that made Donald Trump or helped make Donald Trump president, then obviously 
my book has been one of those books that's 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 been recommended. I think that's a little bit weird, frankly, especially given the fact that I, I really try not to talk about politics too much in the book. But I, I think obviously folks are just grasping for something to try to understand this political moment. And my book is one of the things that they landed on. And, you know, my my hope is that the way that I talk about these issues, the way that I really try to walk somebody through how hard it is to grow up like I did and to, quote unquote, make it in the, the modern American economy, I'm, I'm hopeful that that resonated. And there's there's this fear that I have that the book will sort of be viewed as this explainer of the Trump phenomenon, which, like I said, it really isn't that. And that the core message, the real reason that I wanted to write it, which was to talk about how difficult these problems really are, uh, that that message and that argument gets lost in the political sauce. So I, I think we're um, we're in this moment where it's, it's not totally clear, I think, what the lasting impact of the book will be. But I hope it's that third factor, this, this idea that we need to understand what's really going on in the lives of some of these lower income kids. And like I said, I think we'll see whether that that sticks. I had read the book a little bit before Trump became certainly became before he became president uh, or president elect, and 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 also before I think his even victory in the Republican nomination, Republican contest seemed to be a fact. And what was striking to me about it then, particularly as it became part of the explanatory toolkit people used for it, is that the book is a pretty awkward fit, I think, with Trumpism. And the explanations you give for things, I think, are an awkward fit with where the political class ended up, which is in a sort of Washington fix-it mentality, was an idea that policy has abandoned these Rust Belt towns, that there aren't enough transfer payments, that there's not enough um, energy going into revitalization. The book was in a way that was was, was surprising to me is very cultural in, in its dimension. And you have this line early on that, that sort of, it seemed to me, acted as almost a, a thesis statement that, that this book is about something else, that what goes on in the lives of real people when the industrial economy goes south. It's about reacting to bad circumstances in the worst way possible. It's about a culture that increasingly encourages social decay instead of counteracting it. It seemed like a book that in some ways resisted policy solutionism in in a way that, that seemed unusual to me and also seemed an awkward fit with the political discussion that emerged around it. Well, there's definitely an element of, of truth to that. And there was this interesting article in The Atlantic where Peter Beinart described me as the anti-Trump, which you know, I thought was maybe taking my argument a little bit too far, but was at least a sort of interesting play on, on this question of how much of this is a lack of policy attention and how much of this is everything else. And the one part where I'd push back a little bit is that I, I do think that there has been a certain, I do think in, in other words, policymakers can do more to address some of these problems. And it's not that I think government is totally helpless. It's more that I th that I think government is somewhat helpful and can be somewhat part of the solution, but it can't be the whole solution. And more importantly, I think that if government tries to fix these problems without policymakers really understanding them, then I think those solutions are almost destined to fail. And so I really think of the book as more an explanatory device, a diagnostic, than it is passing hard judgments on whether policy can help here or not help there. But there's definitely something a little bit weird about the way that the book has been picked to 
help explain the Trump phenomenon. Because like you said, at, at the end of the day, my argument is not a robust criticism of American trade policy. It's not a strong indictment of the economic policies of President Bush or President Obama. It's really, like I said, more of a, of a diagnostic, more of an explainer of what really happens in the lives of these people when the industrial economy goes south. And I think that, you know, I sort of buy into a lot of the conventional wisdom about why the industrial economy has gone south. But it, unless I think you appreciate what really goes on in the lives of real people when that happens, you're sort of doomed to be legislating and thinking about these problems in a vacuum, in a vacuum that isn't especially helpful. So I agree with you. Though I, I do always try to push back against this idea that I'm I'm sort of an arch libertarian who doesn't think government can address these issues because I think there definitely is a role for government to play. Yeah, and I apologize. I had not meant to to suggest that you were. But but it is a it is an interesting tension in the book, and it's a way in which I think the book offers an unusually multifaceted look at this. So one thing that has been a big part of the discussion over Trump has been racial tension. And your book cuts in a different way that I'd like to explore a bit, which is that you are very focused in the book or at times in the book on a resentment that I do think has come out a lot this year, not just between folks of different races around social programs, but actually folks of different classes around social programs that you talk about, I guess a way to put it would be sort of a resentment you see among the middle class or the working class versus folks in the poor. And you have this passage in the book where you write, you're trying to explain why white working class folks moved to the Republican Party. And you say that a big part of the explanation lies in the fact that many in the white working class saw precisely what I did working at Dillman's. As far back as the 1970s, the white working class began to turn to Richard Nixon because of a perception that, as one man put it, government was paying people who are on welfare today doing nothing. And we're all hardworking people and we're getting laughed at for working every day. And one of the arguments you make in the book, as, as I understood, was that it's not just a black-white thing, which I think is some is how it's often understood, but it's actually a classing that happens even within mostly white communities from one person to another. Yeah, that's definitely a really important part of yeah of of my thinking and and how the white working class has gravitated towards the Republican Party. You know, it's interesting that that passage in the book is sort of sometimes viewed as my criticism of social welfare programs, right? It's a criticism of food stamps or SNAP or whatever else. And, you know, I actually really explicitly meant to be agnostic in that section of the book. I wasn't sort of saying these programs are good or bad, or maybe they're good with sort of necessary tinkering around the edges. The point that I was I was making is that when you see people using these programs in a certain way, it necessarily causes a certain social distrust among the people who may be using them or maybe not using them, but certainly don't perceive themselves to be misusing these programs, right? And so I saw this with my grandma, who was a classic blue dog Democrat, even though she never voted. But had grown up in poverty herself, had sort of gravitated between working class and impoverished for pretty much her entire life, had no ideological problem with receiving welfare. And in fact, early in her life, had been a recipient of welfare herself. But when she saw these people using these, these programs in a certain way, when she saw people buying soda, but then selling them at 50 or 60 cents on the dollar 
to their neighbors so that they could convert those food benefits into cash benefits. It just creates a certain amount of social mistrust. It's not, I don't think that these programs should exist. It's, I don't like how my neighbors are misusing these programs. And like you said, in our neighborhood, it was always white people who were perceived to be misusing these programs. There wasn't a racial element, at least in my personal experience with this stuff, just because there weren't a whole lot of black people shopping at that grocery store. I didn't have a whole lot of black neighbors. In fact, I think I had one and they moved away when I was pretty young. So I think there needs to be this appreciation for the fact that when you have a certain robustness to the social welfare state, it almost necessarily creates a certain mistrust between those who are misusing or perceived to be misusing the programs and those who are not. And I I think that's just a really important part of understanding one of the social mindset of a lot of people who live in these communities, but also, like you said, the political movement that's, that's existed in the white working class over the past few decades. Sarah Cliff, who's one of my colleagues at Vox, she went out to a county in Kentucky that was one of the ones that had seen the sharpest drop in uninsurance due to the Affordable Care Act. And she began talking to folks there, including a woman who was an enrollment counselor for Obamacare, who had signed up thousands of people and had also ended up voting for Trump. And she talked to a bunch of folks like that. And something she heard a couple of times that I think really speaks to the point you're making here is one of the resentments that had blossomed under Obamacare was this feeling that for folks making 40000 50000 a year, they maybe were getting some help, but they had this pretty spare insurance. They were paying these very high deductibles. Then they looked at their neighbor who wasn't working at all. And in this case, you know, potentially neighbor who whose reasons for not working, they didn't respect. And they saw them on Medicaid and they had basically no co-pays and they had no premiums and they had more generous insurance. And there was a feeling of why are they getting that better health care program? And I'm you know, sitting here with a $2,000, $3,000 deductible given that I work a lot harder. And their view is that Trump had said he'd repeal and replace it, but he was going to fix this. He was going to not take their insurance, but he was going to make it better and make sure they, they got what they deserved as opposed to other people getting more than they deserved. Yeah, this is a really critical failure, I think, of Obamacare, but also the broader Obamacare debate. And I should say that I'm one of these Republicans who has no problem with the idea of the government guaranteeing universal health coverage. But the real failure of Obamacare to me is that it was not especially good to lower middle income and middle income Americans, right? So they saw whether it was because of the general trends in healthcare or whether it was directly because of Obamacare, they saw increases in their premiums, they saw reduced coverage. It was, from the outside, a very bad law for them. But of course, it was a good law for the people who it extended coverage to. But, you know, I I think appreciating that way that some of these benefits are perceived to go to other people at the expense of me, I I think if if that had been better appreciated by policymakers and by those who were guiding the debate going into Obamacare, I really do think that the, the conversation would have been a little bit different. I mean, obviously, when you have a very large transfer program, there are winners and losers. And, you know, I I think those on the left would like to see sort of the winners being those who have won more in the modern economy. So typically the wealthy are the losers in some of these programs. 
And then the winners are those who don't have health insurance. But I think the way that it was perceived is that the winners were those who don't have health insurance and the losers were middle and lower middle income Americans. And I think that's a very tenuous place for a health reform law to rest. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. We did an interview actually with President Obama a couple weeks ago now, and, and he was talking about this. We actually brought this woman from Kentucky out to question him, which was a which was an interesting moment because she stood up and said, look, I'm signing people up for this lawn. It's not affordable. And his argument was, and I'm curious what you think of it. His argument was that his biggest criticism of Obamacare is that it doesn't have enough subsidies. And the way people from his administration tell it is they wanted a program that was more generous. And Republicans, folks who in many cases represent the people you're talking about, were absolutely unwilling to do it. And, and they were they were pretty sharply capped in what they could offer. And so given limited resources, they ended up, you know, they tilted them towards the folks who really, really couldn't pay. But that they would love, they'd be happy to tomorrow to sign a bill into law that pulls another $500 billion of subsidies in and make sure that people making 40000 50000 60000 are able to get health care insurance with much lower premiums, with much higher deductibles, and that, that they are not the obstruction here, but that they have become the villain in it. And so I'm curious on the other side of this, and I recognize that this pulls us a little bit further into policy, and, and we can pull back in a second. But but how do you think about that tension? Because I don't think it's the view of liberals that it should have been that way, but that that was as much as they could get given the need to bring on pretty conservative Democrats and given total Republican dislike for the law. But on the other hand, you know what you're saying is very true. It's right. It just doesn't seem that anybody ends up really representing that sentiment in American politics in a way where it's their priority and where it ends up in it ends up really influencing lawmaking. Yeah, well, there's a separate question I think about whether the ACA really bends the healthcare cost curve in the country and I I sort of don't obviously I'm not the world's biggest expert on that question so I'll leave that to the side. This core question about whether the left 
wanted more or could have gotten more but for Republican intransigence. I think that Honestly, that the answer to that question depends a lot on the day-to-day politics, the behind-the-scenes wrangling that I didn't see a whole lot of, obviously, because I was not involved in the political process then. My suspicion is that – I'm not going to say that because I, I don't really have a strong suspicion one way or the other. But what I, I, I do think is obviously the case is that the moment Obamacare was passed, I think the American healthcare system became – the ownership of the Democratic Party, because obviously no Republicans supported it. Barack Obama signed it into law. And it's interesting, this question of Obamacare would have looked different, but the Republican opposition made it very difficult uh, for it to look different. And and my, my question there is always, it's not like the way that the reform was constructed brought a lot of Republicans on board anyway. There is a bit of a conflict, I think, between sort of blaming Republican intransigence on the state and the composition that the law actually took. But at the same time, the very real political reality that no Republican supported the law anyway. So I think it just as a political matter, it puts Democrats in a really tough position to sort of blame the people who didn't actually support the law. And that may very well have been the Republican strategic goal is to make that the case. But just looking at it from the perspective of a lot of voters, it's sort of a you break it, you buy it mentality. And the perception is that Obamacare broke the American healthcare system. And so the Democrats owned it. Let me ask about how Trump intersects with not the Obamacare piece of this, but the the underlying sentiments. Because Trump, I do think, blew up a consensus here. And part of what I was getting at with the Obamacare bit of it is that you have a, a party in the country that is quite, I think, focused, particularly when creating transfer programs on giving as much as possible to the poorest of the poor or the nearly poorest of the poor. And then you have a a party in this country that is pretty focused on shrinking the size of government. And Trump sort of walks into the middle of this and offers, I think, a third way. He's pretty pro-safety net, pro-welfare state. He promises not to touch Medicare or Social Security or Medicaid. So he's not a small government guy. But what is his promise is, I think, somewhat in contrast to the Democrats, is that he's going to make sure it stops going instead of to you, the hardworking I think in a sort of implicit way, white American, but but we could argue over that. But instead of going to you, it's been going to these immigrants who are coming across the border. And it's been going out to these sort of classes of others. He talks a lot about the total destruction of the inner city and you know the 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 ways in which that has been a, a continuous suck on on American politics. And I think this is one of those places where there's a real contested meaning to Donald Trump. I know you've been critical of stuff we've written on Vox on this, but there's one vision of him which I think fits into this argument you're making that Alec McGillis makes that he is he's speaking to a resentment that you see in white communities, but that is really not about race. It's really about sort of working and non-working. And then there is the tension of the issues he's used to break open the consensus, which is really, you know, immigrants coming from there, you know, Muslims coming from there, crime and chaos in the inner cities. So how do you do you see him as helpful in this? Do you see him as echoing this? Do you see him as something different that has just kind of managed to coincide with it? Where, where does his story intersect here with yours? So my view on the meaning of Trump is, one, it's obviously complicated because 60 some odd million people voted for him. And I think everybody has a different reason for why they voted for him. But my primary conclusion here 
is that Trump identified a problem and so he got to name it, right? So Republicans, you know, you mentioned the less government versus more government dichotomy in American politics. And if you actually look at the polling, if you look at the data, the majority of Republican primary voters, they didn't want what I will call Romneyism. They had rejected Romneyism in one form or another. And of the Republican candidates who ran in 2016, only one of them was explicitly rejecting Romneyism or Bushism or whatever it is that the Republican Party had been trying for 20 or 30 years. And because he really identified a lot of these frustrations, a lot of these feelings of being left behind and left out, I think that he got to name it. And the thing that he named it was in some cases, like you said, uh, maybe a fear of the other. But the core part of Trump's message, as I understood it, or at least as people back home uh, seem to be understanding it, is that one, Trump would bring back jobs, he would bring back good work. That was the core, that was the main thing that really excited people about Trump's message and about his rallies and so forth. Even the immigration issue, whether you agree with him on the policy particulars or not, was framed as a jobs question. Um, and the, the second thing, this question of who are the others that the benefits of the economy are going to, um, primarily the message that I was getting from Trump and certainly the message that I was getting from Trump voters is, is that the other wasn't black Americans living in the inner cities. It wasn't brown Americans immigrating from Mexico or wherever else. It was the elites, that the real winners of the past 20 or 30 years of the American economy, it wasn't these other groups of working class and poor Americans, it was the elites, it was the Clintons of the world, it was the Jeb Bushes of the world. And, and you know, even the way that Trump framed this, this, this question of the inner cities, um, you know, he criticized the inner cities for being infested with crime and drugs and, and whatever else. It was obviously a very blunt way of putting it. And I think a lot of African-Americans were rightfully offended by the way that he described the inner cities, the way that he described black communities. But, but even then, it's not like he was framing black Americans as the winners of the past 15 or 20 years. He was really framing them as the losers in the same way that he was framing the white working class as losers. So it always occurred to me that the great enemy of Trump's campaign was never racial minorities. It was always the elites, whoever that is. One of the things I've reflected on around Trump is that there's long been in liberal circles a the dream of solidarity, the dream of economic solidarity. And, you know, when you listen to the way it's explained by someone like Bernie Sanders, the idea is that there is some way of knitting together a coalition, a coalition of, quote unquote, us, that is white working class and the sort of multicultural working class, right? You know, that whether or not you are working retail in a rural town in Ohio or you're working retail in Los Angeles, whether you're white or, or Hispanic, you're facing pretty similar issues there. You're facing overtime scheduling and all these different things. And, and I think what Trump did a little bit to your point here, I wouldn't say it was just one or the other. Trump was actually able to create, instead of the us of a united working class, a them of elites plus sort of multiculturalism. And it wasn't individuals. And I think your your point is well taken that, you know, he certainly wasn't framing African-Americans as the winners of the last couple of years, but it was, you know, the elites are 
colluding to create this sort of multicultural America where people are allowed to come across the border because it's cheap labor for them and you're the one who's ending up paying. And what he did, I think, was in a he he defined an enemy in a way that or an other in a way that was unusual and and was very effective. But the idea that at the core of it was power and power from those who did hold it, I think is correct. It's interesting to the the way that this especially the immigration side of this has sort of manifested itself in my own life. And I think that, you know, we can look at the data and we can run the multivariate correlations on what's really driving Trump's success. But I I think, you know, like I, like most people are very influenced by what we see and the way that we interpret it. And in my own life, very close family members who are extremely, one, generous and two, very involved with a family of undocumented immigrants. And these these family members are devoted, devoted Trump people. I mean, you know, the types of people who have Make America Great Again trucker hats. And I always think about sort of the juxtaposition between the culturally liberal view of the Trump voter and sort of these particular family members, because I do think that there's this really strong disconnect between those two perceptions. And if you ask these family members of mine why they're voting for Trump, despite the fact that at least if you take him literally, he may very well deport these people that they consider very close friends and that they love a great deal. The response is always, he's not going to deport them. What he's going to do is fix the system that forces them to live in the shadows. He's going to fix the system that allows other people to get ahead of them in line. And so even when it's it's taken to this sort of, I mean, the part of Trump's message that is explicit as possible, which is that undocumented immigrants are an unacceptable strain on American society, you sort of see his voters reinterpreting it in a way that, you know, whether they're right or they're wrong, I I think that there's something actually quite admirable about the way that they perceive what he's going to do and how it motivates their voting. I think that's interesting. It's it's an interesting choice of word, admirable. I, I very much see what you're saying there. And I think there's actually something to it. It also, I, I'm very caught on this stuff. And, you know, somebody who runs a lot of reporters writing about it and writing about it in very different ways and from very different directions. It's tricky, I, I think. There is a good line, and it's not from me, it's from someone else, that you did not by any means need to be a bigot to vote for Donald Trump. And I think the majority of people who did vote for Trump are not bigots. But there are certain things you needed to be okay with that were a lot harder for folks of color to treat as lightly. It does take a kind of position to say, hey, I'm, I'm pretty sure that won't happen, so I'm not going to worry about it. Now, on the other hand, like in the Obamacare story, people did this at times with their own lives too. But I do think this is one of the complicated things in trying to interpret this phenomenon. Because on the one hand, I, th- I think you're right. It's going far too far. And it's asking far too much to say that everybody who voted for Trump, to somebody probably including Trump and his own family, believed and agreed with every word Trump said, taken in every way in which he said it. On the other hand, there is a risk tolerance that depending on who you are in this discussion, I think feels very different and can feel very frustrating. I remember thinking a lot during the campaign that if what Trump had said was that Jewish people should not be able to travel to and from the United States, right? If he had come out and said, you know, I'm for a Jewish travel ban, whatever I thought about him winning, I would have left the country, right? I mean, that that yeah. speaks to an ancient fear in myself and my people. But 
a lot of Muslim folks didn't didn't have that option. And a lot of people around them took it as, oh, you know, take Trump seriously, not literally. But, you know, the, the question of who gets to decide is, I think, a very hard one. Yeah, I, I agree. The point about risk tolerance for some of the things that Trump said, I think, is a very important one. And it's something that I've, I've tried to be it's something I've tried to talk with my family a lot that, you know, if if we maybe looked a little bit differently, if our names were a little bit different, then maybe we wouldn't be so tolerant of some of the things that he said. We wouldn't be so willing to sort of cast it aside and say, yeah, that's not really what he means or that's not really what he thinks. The complicating factor, of course, is that people weren't voting a binary yes or no Trump. They They were necessarily voting if not for Trump, then for Hillary Clinton. You know, there are all these framings. Trump voters took him seriously, not literally. The media takes him vice versa. All these framings that were, I think, somewhat useful in in trying to understand the Trump phenomenon, but just go to to show how difficult it was for a lot of folks to understand Mm -hmm. why people were voting for him. The, The framing that I have always had to this is that there's both a substance and a process element to Trump. There's the things that he says, the policies such as they are that he he hopes to enact. That's the substantive part of Trump. But then there's the process part of Trump, which is a criticism of the elites, a criticism of the way that we engage in political discourse, a criticism, obviously, specifically of the Clintons and especially Hillary Clinton. And my my sense is that the sort of process side of Trump was very appealing to a lot of people, even as the substantive side of, of him was at least a little bit disconcerting, even to a lot of his voters. That's a very interesting point. And it's funny. I, it's almost like I want to stop the podcast for 10 minutes and think about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> because there are times when I actually almost felt the opposite, that I wondered if somebody with Trump's ideas and his policies who did not have many of his process and temperamental dimensions wouldn't have actually even done better. That I I think Trump was in very useful ways freed from a lot of the pieces of the party consensus that are quite unpopular, but that part of what freed him was a confrontational personality and a personality that is very comfortable being the villain, at least in certain quarters, almost like a a classic reality star television set of qualities that it gave him the ability to step outside the lines in ways that ended up being useful to him. But I think a lot of people, you know, they may not like all the boundaries on political discourse, but I think they were unhappy with a lot of the things Trump himself said, even if, you know, they they maybe recognized different things they themselves had said. And, and so I wonder, I think it's a good question, is was Trump popular for his ideas, which were were genuinely in some ways different, at least the way he articulated them on the stump? Or was he popular for the style in which he approach those ideas and the way he promised he would he would act upon those ideas in office. I guess one way of thinking about it is, are the people you know, are, are the people around you, are they upset about the fact that Trump has brought so many folks from Goldman Sachs and, and CEOs from other companies into his office? I mean, if this was a, a, a backlash to a globalized elite, it would seem that what he's doing would, would anger people. But I, that's not really been the feeling I've gotten. No, that's not been the the feeling that I've gotten either. And there's always been this element with Trump where a lot of people feel that he's peeling the onion back and showing them how the world actually works and sort of giving them some perspective into 
a part of our political and financial process that usually lays hidden. A lot of the things that make Trump sort of, I think, repulsive to a lot of the people who didn't vote for him, a lot of the people who did vote for him, they wouldn't necessarily live their lives like that if they could, but they, they, they sort of appreciate the fact that he's showing them how the omelet is made. He's showing them how these things actually work. And because of that, they sort of appreciate, they, they appreciate him in a certain way. And my view with cabinet picks, I, I've never been surprised that they've never engendered the backlash that you might suspect, like if you said it was purely a criticism of the globalized elite. My sense is that a lot of folks feel like this is the way that business is done. Trump is again showing us the processes and the functions of government. And what he'll ultimately be judged on is if things actually change, you know, because I think that something very real drove the Trump phenomenon the question of whether he's rewarded or punished by the people who voted for him, I think will will hinge on whether those very real things get better or whether they get worse. There's definitely something to that. I always thought the thing about his appeal and his messaging that was the most genius piece of it was he would be attacked for outsourcing in his own companies or getting his shirts made in China. And and he would just say, yeah, I was a businessman. I know how to use a system. And now I'm going to be exactly as selfish and exactly as aggressive on behalf of you. He, he had this one line in a rally that I heard that I just thought was genius where he said, I've been greedy all my life. I have been so, so greedy. And now I'm going to be greedy on behalf of America. And there was something in that that it, it really it really worked. I mean, I heard it and it really worked. And it shouldn't have. I mean, you can't imagine. You really need to be a certain kind of person to sell that. Hillary Clinton couldn't have sold that line. But there was a sense that in some ways what was discomforting about this guy, if you had a really negative view of the sort of global elite, if you thought they were this bad anyway, the idea that one of these sort of terrible, totally selfish, going to screw over their neighbor kind of people was now had had some kind of change of heart and was going to act that way on your behalf and get you entrance into into these gains. I mean, you know, there's something appealing to that. Yeah, exactly. He's like your double agent, right? So he was on the <laughs> other side. He came back to your side to fight on your behalf. And oh, by the way, he's confirming every single negative stereotype that you held about that global elite. I, I, I just think there's something remarkably powerful about that that duality of Trump. So there's something to, to bring Trump back a bit to your book. One of the things that is core to his portrayal of his own life is Trump as agent of his own story, right? Trump is the main character. Trump is somebody who, whatever he decides to do, it just gets done. Um, he he really speaks of, insofar as I think he's a political philosophy, it is, well, I'm just going to decide to do it and then I'll do what needs to happen to, to get it done. And, and you write in your book that whenever people ask me what I'd most like to change about the white working class, I say the feeling that our choices don't matter. And that struck me as an interesting juxtaposition. The person who, uh, of everybody I've ever seen in public life, seems to believe that his personal choices matter the most, has almost no sense of limitation, really appealing to a world in which, you know, at least as you describe it, is afflicted by a sense that the everyday choices have stopped having meaning. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never thought of that before, but it, it definitely, you know, hearing it the first time, makes a great deal of sense. I mean, this is something that I worry a lot about 
in the book and the way that I frame it is a sort of learned helplessness, this constant feeling of being kicked by the economy, by your boss, by your family even, this sense that things just aren't going to get better no matter how hard you try. And again, I, I don't think that that view comes from nothing. I, I do think that these sort of attitudes can come from somewhere that's very legitimate, but then be pretty self-destructive once they set in. And it is fascinating to think of Donald Trump as a sort of clarion call against that self-defeatism. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't have much else to add other than to say that thinking about it, it, it sounds pretty interesting. And there, there's something powerful, right, about feeling a little hopeless and a little powerless in your own life, but then seeing this political figure who sort of explains why you feel hopeless and powerless, but is is sort of so powerful in his own right, or at least in his promises, that, you know, makes you really want to vote for him. There's a, a comedian, Nick Mulvaney, who had, before he ever ran for president, uh, a very funny little stand-up bit on Trump where he said that, that Donald Trump is a homeless guy's idea of what a rich guy would be like. That, you know, <laughs> right. if you got rich, you're going to have like golden hair and you're going to have like buildings with your name on them. You're going to fire people with your children on television. <laughs> and yeah. that he he exists as a almost a caricature of a certain kind of complete mastery over the economy that what is interesting about him is not that is not so much that he's rich but he uses his wealth as a way of talking about control right the ability to just get on television and make a show about the control you have over people's jobs there is something if you feel powerless in the economy trump is a parody of economic power in a way that might be comforting again to have the idea of that kind of impulse and that kind of mastery working on on your behalf against the people and the groups you know from elites to immigrants who you feel have been part of the conspiracy holding you back that's very fascinating and it brings to mind this idea that i have that we really have to understand resentments at economic power in the way and in the context that people actually possess these resentments, right? So you mentioned the heavily Goldman Sachs influenced cabinet and whether sort of a lot of Trump's voters will react to that. But one of the things that, that occurred to me as I was listening to you just then is that people aren't necessarily resentful at the Donald Trumps of the world. They're not resentful at the CEOs and the billionaires. They tend to be most resentful at the guy who fires them or fires their buddy from uh, their job. They tend to be more resentful not at the CEO of the company who lives in a gated community 30 miles away. They, they, they tend to be most resentful at the guy who has you know a nicer house who works maybe one or two levels above you who has a college degree even though you don't have a college degree and sort of you know lords over you in a certain way you know that that's obviously a caricature of the way that that economic power manifests itself in our economy but there is a sense in which i i feel like the working class is much more resentful at the upper middle class than it is at the very wealthy and that's another way that i think people haven't quite been able to articulate why it is that Donald Trump and his wealth and his ostentatiousness doesn't really hurt him among his core voters. Well, there's something related to that, which is people talk about money and 
they use that as a synonym for class, and it isn't actually clear those two things are are quite so symmetrical. So you were talking a bit ago about well, we can run all the multivariate regressions and and so on, and 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 we have. <laughs> there have been right. a lot of good papers, <laughs> and one of the papers that we, we wrote about this a couple of weeks back. If you really look into it, so race attitudes on race and attitudes of gender are very 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 powerful, but something stronger also than income is education, and. One thing that is interesting about Trump is that he does not wear his wealth in a mannered elite way. He wears his wealth in a way that I think other very, very rich people find pretty gauche. And that the way he speaks to things that really offended a lot of people who heard them. I think they offended a lot of members of the working class too, but not quite as much that there was an educational divide there between, you know, hey, like people can talk cruder. It's okay to, you know, this was the whole thing I think about locker room talk was not that it was okay, but that existing within a certain context, it doesn't need to be taken as literally. And and while I don't agree that what Trump was doing was locker room talk, you know, I've heard that and, and I hear it. And so I think there's something to, to what you're saying here too, which is that sometimes what people resent is not that people have more money over them, but a feeling of cultural superiority and cultural capital. And Trump, despite being a maybe billionaire, maybe hundred millionaire, but but a rich guy, he seemed as angry and as rejected by the keepers of social capital, ranging from President Obama to Saturday Night Live to other businessmen, as you know, folks who were making thirty five thousand did, and and they, there was a kind of shared anger at that class. Absolutely, there's something very analogous to the way that cultural elites tended to criticize Trump for his tackiness, and the way that, frankly, when I went to Yale Law School, I heard people criticizing sort of middle America for its tackiness, right? So the restaurants you eat at, the way that you conduct yourself, but, but you know, even the houses that you live in, the cookie cutter suburbs and so forth, that there is this sense in which, to your point, class and culture and senses of tackiness were really big drivers of this resentment that a lot of Trump voters felt towards the elites. And I think that one of the one of the places that gets you which at least in my view, is is at least somewhat interesting, is there was a there was an aesthetic revulsion to Trump, and at times it it worked in his favor, and I think that's a piece of this that is that is a little bit underappreciated, and and he has a I don't know if it's a strategic or an intuitive genius for it, but he does pick a lot of these fights, and they draw a sharper battle line, I think, than than people would maybe prefer is drawn. But there is a question, are you on Meryl Streep's side? Are you on Donald Trump's side? And and that puts things in a in a bit of a different place. It it gives people, I think, a little bit of a different license in in which to to join with him. But to to maybe draw a, a larger thing that we're talking about here, a lot of groups in America that are often spoke of in the singular are plural. And we, you know, you talk about white people, but one of the things that your book is talking about is actually that not all white people are the same. And the point is not here simply that some are rich and some are poor. But your book is talking about a particular lineage of Scots-Irish folks who settled primarily in certain parts of the of the country, have distinct cultural markers and, and patterns than other people do. And to this point about resentments, I think have not done as well income-wise and so hear about white privilege and think, Fuck you. Like nothing about my community says to me that I'm privileged and should be should be at the back of the line for getting some help here. 
And I, I'm curious how you think about that playing out and how you hear it in the conversation. First of all, I, I think it's one of the ways that the thesis of the book, or at least some of the background arguments I make in the book, is really relevant to the 2016 election. And I remember right after the Iowa primary, somebody, you know, a, a political scientist, I believe, did basically an ethnographic breakdown of Trump versus Cruz versus Rubio in the Iowa caucuses. And what he found, and I'm going to overstate this maybe because I haven't seen this study in nearly a year, is that one of the, if not the biggest correlate to Trump support, the strongest correlations for Trump support was identifying as Scots-Irish or one of its derivatives. And I, and I really thought that that was a massively underreported part of this election cycle is the way that Trump has this special appeal among Americans with at least some Scots-Irish descent. You know, I mean, I really think that's why he won Pennsylvania, Miss Michigan, and, and to a smaller extent, Wisconsin, is if you look at the migration patterns, those areas, the white working class populations of those areas are heavily Scots-Irish. And I do think that's something that I'm surprised hasn't been explored a little bit more. But to connect it to the, the conversation about, you know, white privilege and so forth, I think it's always important to note that there are obviously still advantages to being white. There are still disadvantages to being black, even when you control completely for class, income, and so forth. But one of the points that I try to make is that if you're asking the son of an unemployed West Virginia coal miner to check his privilege or to appreciate the ways in which, let's say, Barack Obama's daughters are going to be privileged or underprivileged relative to him in certain ways. I, I, I think that you're asking just too much from basic human cognition. Like that kid cannot look at his life and say about a group of people that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't even interact with a lot day to day, that their lives are much worse than his. And I, and I think that that's one of the things that the the modern discourse around racial privilege and racial racial disadvantage sort of misses out is that even though I don't think most of the people making these arguments are that reductive, I think that they're a lot more sophisticated in what they're saying, how privilege operates along different dimensions in our society. The, the way that it's actually talked about appears very reductive. And I think that's a really significant problem. So you have a, a stat in the book that working class whites are currently the most pessimistic group in America. You write that they're more pessimistic than Latino immigrants, many of whom suffer unthinkable poverty. They're more pessimistic than black Americans whose material prospects continue to lag behind those of whites. And, and I've seen data like this before. And, and one of the things that always makes me think about, there are there are ways you can look at working class whites and, and suggest that actually things have have turned in a very different way for them. Like the you've seen an increase um, in mortality among that group for sure, which is a pretty fundamental measure of, of how well you're doing. But there's also culturally, if you are, you know, to, to the point you just made, a kid whose father is unemployed and you're in a, a sort of struggling majority white community and you're turning on the television and the president is an African-American and, you know, you're looking at sitcoms and they're suddenly much, much, much more diverse. So there's a lot of representations, uh, more so than there certainly have been before, of a rising multicultural America. Meanwhile, nobody you see talks like you do, right? Nobody has the accent you do. Nobody has the cultural markers you do. And then you hear that white privilege is the problem. 
without taking anything away from the idea that there really is such a thing, because I really do think there is, you could not have somebody like Trump, who is an African-American elected president in this country. Like He is a walking thing of white privilege, in, in my view. But I think that can create its own kind of resentment. And it, and it speaks to, I think, a way in which the way we categorize groups, even as it is helpful for just being able to communicate about a very big, very diverse country, it is still very reductive. And to the folks who are left out in those characterizations or don't feel described by them correctly, really deeply infuriating and, and, and potentially seems like you're just, you know, you're just going to be on the outs here because you're being left behind. Yeah, that's exactly right, I think. And the problem, as I see it, is that we haven't necessarily developed a great vocabulary to describe disadvantage in a newer, much more culturally diverse country. I think part of this is an artifact of the fact that when you think of poverty, many people think immediately of inner city black people. So it's not necessarily surprising that when we talk about advantage or disadvantage, it sort of necessarily reduces into a question of, of race versus other things. But one of the things that I hope that a reader of my book, for example, will take away from this conversation about advantage and disadvantage is that it really operates among multiple different axes, right? So it's a function of where you grew up. It's a function of whether you grew up in concentrated poverty. It's a function of your race. It's a function of your class. It's a function of the education level of your parents. It's a function of how much childhood trauma you faced. It's a function of whether your parents are single or still married. And I, I really think that we have to catch our collective vocabulary up to the real complexity of these problems, because if we don't, we're left effectively talking about the issue in incredibly reductive ways that one, isn't helpful for the reasons you sort of described, but two, I, I really think maybe discolors the public debate in a certain way. It's, it's not just that talking to that kid about white privilege is not an especially useful way to understand his real disadvantage. It's that it actually makes that kid, it makes it harder for him to see the disadvantages that other people face. It makes him harder to really participate, I think, in a public conversation that we all need to have about how to give not just kids like him more opportunity, but other kids too. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Let me ask you about the other side of this, because here we're talking about something that that I struggle with pretty directly in, in my own writing and my own editing, because I, I hear everything you just said there. And then you talk to somebody who's African-American and they say the quantity of cultural sympathy that is being directed towards Trump voters is overwhelming. The idea that they always need to be understood better, that there need to be more and more and more sympathetic profiles, that people need to spend more time there. And that's not true for folks who were followers, say, of Louis Farrakhan, who also had his bigoted moments, but was speaking to a very real sense of cultural dislocation and economic anxiety and frustration and feeling that your communities are falling apart. And even in a maybe less provocative way than that, the folks who are are seeing police brutality in a pretty routine way in their communities or who, you know, look at the studies and see that, you know, if you've got a stereotypically African-American name, you're just less likely to be called back for a job or that the wealth gap is, you know, it's an order of magnitude or two. And they say to not be able to talk about this stuff, to get so collapsed into, into sympathy that all of a sudden when it's problems for a traditionally marginalized community, there needs to be a level of precision that they never got and a level of sympathy they never got, that it also holds back the conversation in a different way. And I'm, I'm curious how you, how you think about that. Well, so I, I, I hear those, those arguments too, and I definitely think there's an element of truth to them. The way that I frame it first is that sort of sympathy that's completely disconnected from really looking in a tough way what's going on in these communities, the ways in which the problems in these communities can become self-replicating is a, a really significant and negative problem. And so, you know, one of the things that I try to do in my book is to be very sympathetic about the way in which these various structural problems make it very hard on the white working class community, but also to be a little bit hard-headed about the ways in which you know, white working class Americans, not all of them, of course, not even most of them, but certainly some of them have reacted to these problems in a very negative way. And I think that if we have sympathy completely disconnected from moral judgment, I don't think it's real sympathy. I think it's basically the sympathy of an outsider that's condescending and may make people feel good, but it's at the end of the day, not going to really help make the problem any, um, any better. The, the way that I, I see that in, in the African-American community is, is almost sort of the exact opposite, right? So typically, if we talk about culture in the black community, at least with regards to the problems of the black community, it's almost always in this morally condemn, condemnatory way, right? So it's like, let's look at these pathological black people and all of the problems that their culture causes them. And I think that way of talking is has been incredibly destructive. And it's been destructive in two separate ways. And one, it's allowed us to sort of ignore the problems of black Americans that we should be really, and when we should be really paying attention to them. And two, I think that it has caused us to talk about culture in a way that's about judgment and blame and not about understanding. Because I, I think that if you look at some of the best sociologists and political scientists and so forth who are writing on this, William Julius Wilson, Robert Putnam, 
these guys are worried about culture. They're just not worried about culture in a way that's that necessarily percolates to the standard, you know, everyday political conversation. So I think that's a real casualty of the way that we've typically talked about so-called black pathology in the inner cities. And so to, to sort of tie all this up, my view of this is that we should continue to offer sympathetic but hard-nosed looks at the white working class community, and we should maybe pair that with more sympathetic views of what's going on in the black community. So my fear is that when I see this argument coming from, from certain quarters of social media or the blogosphere or wherever, it's often used as an excuse to show, you know, let's let's be more judgmental, let's show less sympathy and compassion for the white working class. And I, I sort of would take almost the exact opposite approach to that, which is let's show more sympathy to black Americans and try to really understand what's going on there. Because it's it's just a matter of fact, you mentioned the wealth gap, and I think you can talk about these these issues along a number of different dimensions. But we continue to have a problem in this country, especially for black Americans. I think one thing that is a contributor here is that we have trouble, just trouble, talking about problems that are non-economic. I think that we have a language for economic problems, but particularly when it comes to people discussing what's happening in, in white working class communities, a lot of the problems are not the ones that come through first on a economic metric test. So, I mean, there were things showing that, you know, Trump voters had a higher median income than the average American household. And that doesn't mean that their communities don't have problems, but it does make a, a straightforward discussion of economic anxiety a little bit hard to countenance. You actually gave a, an interview to Slate and, and you had a really nice language around this, I thought, where you talked about social and cultural anxiety. And for these communities, you diagnosed it as it's a sense that the world around you is falling apart. It's not just that you can't find a good job, but that your kids are dying off opioid overdoses, that your families are breaking apart, that churches are not really present in your community, that you can't trust the media. And I think we have a difficult time measuring and discussing more complex, multifaceted and softer forms of breakdown that we can't just say, hey, look, the unemployment rate has gone up to 9.6%. And so there's clearly a crisis here. We, we have, I think, more trouble talking about uh, people's estimations of their lives going forward, in part, I think, because it's harder to measure and in part because sometimes it's more subjective and it doesn't fit some of the other data. But it doesn't make it unreal to the experience people are having of their own lives. So I, I agree 100% with that. And I, I think a lot about why that is, about why we're so bad about talking about non-economic problems. And I think it's partially just a symptom of the fact that our public discourse is really dominated by what I'll call the technocratic left and the libertarian right. And so we, we, we want to see these problems purely in terms of sort of rational actors responding to incentives. And so if you're talking about these problems in a way that doesn't presume that if you push on this or that policy or economic lever, that these problems will start to disappear, I think you, you take people, especially smart people in modern America, really out of their comfort zone. But you know, th this again is, is, goes back to why I really wanted to write this book, 
because I, I think that it's so tough to really appreciate what's going on unless you take yourself out of the purely economic sphere. If you're not talking about social and cultural capital, if you're not talking about the role of religion, which can be either positive or negative in these communities, as I write about, if you're not talking about the role of childhood trauma and family instability, these are things that are real. And if you look at the data, they definitely affect these kids' life prospects. I mean, if you look at a study like Raj Chetty's, for example, we did this huge study on equality of opportunity in the United States. You can make a very good argument that the two most important things that he identified were social capital and family breakdown as really strong correlates of what's driving the difference in mobility in the country. And I think that we're just not very good at talking about those issues. One of the things that's been good, I guess, about the reception to the book, even on on sort of the far right and, and even on the left, folks have been pretty open about appreciating the way that I approach those issues. They've sort of engaged with them in the way that I hope they would, which is not purely economic problems. But you, you still see some of that in, again, in, in some of the reception I've had to the book on the right and on the left, where there's this, this desire to sort of retreat into the purely material explanation of these problems. And I think that's a real, real mistake. You know, it's funny, uh, and, and this is a weird direction to take this, but I've just been thinking, listening to this last bit of the conversation, for your point about the discourse being dominated by the technocratic left and the libertarian right, I think is completely true. And yet there's a, a dimension, at least of the technocratic left, and I'll use Hillary Clinton here as an example, that is very focused on these problems, but cannot seem to communicate effectively about them. I interviewed Clinton during the campaign, and, and a question I asked her, a question I'll ask you later, is to name some of her favorite books. And the two books she named that she was thinking about a lot on the campaign trail were Robert Putnam's, um, I think the book is called Our Kids, but yep. it is a deep sort of ethnographic look at the ways in which culture and lived experience and community are really tearing apart the futures for kids who are born in poor communities and, and kids of all races. And she named Habits of the Heart, which is, I think, a book a little bit connected to what you said. It's a, a sociology book, I think, from the late 80s. But it's really about community breakdown. It's really about isolation. It's really about the role religion does or doesn't play in our lives. She had become very activated around the opioid crisis. And yet what she was never able to do was convey a sense of on-your-sideism. As much as she was obsessed with the problems, I think in a pretty textured way, she couldn't communicate with Trump, who I think has no idea that Robert Putnam has written a book called Our Kids and is not deeply thoughtful, frankly, on a lot of the way these things overlap and interact. But he had some capacity to say, I am on your side. And that was what people responded to. And, and, and so I guess I'm just curious how you think about that, because as you talk about the need to really understand these problems, I mean, what the technocrats, and I, I do count myself as for, for better and for worse, a bit of a technocrat, what they're trying to do is understand them. And then they, you know, sort of by nature end up translating them into language that is more scientific and, you know, more gilded. But it's part of an effort. So, so how would you tell folks um, like Clinton or, or, or others, what do they need to do? What, what is it they need to understand or what is it they need to be able to communicate in order to marry the sort of research they're doing with the need for people to actually have some trust that they understand what's going on in a less arid, abstract way? 
For political leaders, my advice would be that no matter how much you care about these things on an emotional or an intellectual level, unless you're really on the ground and present, you're always going to come up short in convincing people that you actually do care. You know, Hillary Clinton famously never went to Wisconsin during what the final few months of the campaign or maybe during the entire general election campaign. She spent comparatively little time in Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, certainly not in the area. That's not that, true. I should just say for Pennsylvania. For, for, okay. Yeah, okay. they were there well, a lot. Stan, I, 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 so I, I should say didn't spend time in the areas of Pennsylvania where Trump was especially popular. My understanding is she spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh, the Philadelphia suburbs and so forth. And the natural response to what I'm saying is, well, of course, she's not going to spend time in these areas. They're not going to vote for her. But I think the way in which the composition of the electorate geographically has become so segregated and so divided, in some ways becomes supremely self-reinforcing, right? So Hillary Clinton may have read Robert Putnam's book and really cared about these issues, but how much time did she spend at rallies on the ground with these people who are really, really suffering from them? I mean, my answer, even though I don't know, my suspicion is that she probably spent not a whole lot of time because the areas where the opioid crisis was worst, of course, went very heavily for Donald Trump. And so my my fear here is that the way that the political incentives work in our system right now make it very hard for politicians from one side of the aisle to sort of convince voters from the other side of the aisle that they actually care about their problems. And I don't think any amount of emotional or intellectual investment in the problem is really going to change that. I, I really do think that this is a symptom of one of the things that I worry about a ton, which is the geographic segregation by political ideology in our country. I think there's a lot that's interesting in there. And and I wonder, let me push on you a little bit because I, I think it's a it's a fascinating topic. So I sometimes think of it as having different dimensions that, that can mislead you a little. So I'd push a little bit on the Clinton thing, and I'd push on it for all of them, New Hampshire, in part because it really is one of the epicenters of the opioid crisis, and because she prefers to campaign in small groups that end up talking to her for a long time. You know, early in the campaign, and, and I, I covered a bunch of this, she spent a lot of time with people who were wrecked by the opioid crisis and was the first candidate to come out with a very comprehensive, detailed plan, in part because of that. But that wasn't, and I think this is a tricky thing, that wasn't what people wanted exactly. And I think to the point you're making, there is something people want about feeling understood, not catered to in policies, not told what they're going to get in a specific way, but understood to feel like you on some level are in a deep sympathy with them. And that sympathy comes without pity that a lot of political actors, and, and this is true on the left and the right, struggle with, right? I think probably Jeb Bush had a good understanding of a bunch of these topics, but he was not in any way able to to forge that human connection. And this is, you know, I'll be totally frank, this is a part of politics I have the most uh, anxiety around because it's the one I understand in some ways at least. And, you know, I have the tendency to think, well, let's look at the plans and see which one we think will do the most good. But I wonder if it really is time versus there being some kind of fundamental ability to make a connection and fundamental ability to show sympathy and fundamental ability to choose a side in the conflicts that feel very core to people's lives and feel like the ones where a choice needs to be made that 
ends up driving a lot of behavior here. And as you say, as people get more separated geographically, the nature of those conflicts becomes more fundamental. And the ability to bring people together is becoming increasingly remote. Well, I definitely agree with you that this capacity to form a connection is one of the clear critical problems that that a lot of our politicians face these days. It's difficult for me to disentangle it from how much is geographic proximity versus something else, right? So it strikes me that not spending a lot of time in these areas, not living in these areas, not campaigning in these areas, that sort of drives the difficulty in connecting. And to put a, a very fine point on it, I think just because of the way that upper middle class elites educate themselves, the way that they intermarry, the way that they work, where they live and so forth, is just really driving this wedge further and further, right? So it may not be that Hillary Clinton could have solved the problem by campaigning more in rural Pennsylvania or suburban Southwest Ohio. The problem may just be that she spent so long among a certain class of society, and that class of society is just not good at emotionally connecting with another class of society. And here I'm speaking of sort of the elites versus the broad middle. And I unfortunately just do not have the answer to that problem, but it's something that really, really bothers me, this fear that those who are doing especially well in our society for one reason or another, that they've sort of lost touch with those who don't feel that they're doing especially well in our society. And this is not new, but I I do believe that it's accelerating and becoming a bigger, bigger problem as we move forward. So so this is something I think you probably have a specific perspective on, because part of the book is that you, you know, ultimately go to Yale Law School. And I'm not sure how much this is in the book, but you worked or maybe currently work for a investment firm that, that Peter Thiel founded out in San Francisco. So you've been in, in very different social strata. And I'm curious what you took away from that. I mean, we've been talking here a bit about politicians who live in a very rarefied world, but in a much more everyday sense, just talking about someone you meet who you know just works a job in San Francisco in the tech industry or folks who are in Yale Law. The, I guess, the best law school in the country. Did you feel this was as big a problem there? And how was that to navigate, if so? I did think that it was a big problem there. And I continue to think that it's a pretty big problem in my current life. And I, I, I would just say that the thing that's so jarring about the life that I grew up in versus the life that I lead now is just this this question of expectations where people think that they're going to send their kids to school, the fact that they expect their kids to go to college, the sorts of restaurants they eat at, and not just the restaurants they eat at, but you know maybe the, the, the feelings of condescension towards Applebee's or Friday's or the restaurants that a lot of other people in the country do eat at. There's just this sense that I get when I live in, in the world of the so-called elites that they just think much different things about their lives. They expect much different things to come out of their lives. And increasingly, as extreme as this sounds, I feel sometimes like they even have a sort of different value set. I mean, the things that they're worried about, it's just so different. And it may be that any person who's experienced rapid upward mobility 
for the past 50 or 100 or 150 years has sort of felt the same thing I did, this this jarring sense that the clan that you came from is so much different from the clan that you live in now. My sense looking at the data is that this problem is definitely becoming worse. But this is something that really, that I think is just one of the the big underappreciated and underreported elements of what's going on in American society. The fact that the elites are so segregated, not just in location, but in what they're doing with their lives, how they expect their kids to live, and on and on. Tell me about the differences in the value set that you've found. I would say the biggest difference in the value set is how to phrase this delicately, but there's a sense that the jobs, the jobs that people have and the credentials that they have are one of the main things that really give their lives value. That's my new life. In my old life, I sort of, I saw a job as purely a means to an end, as a means to maybe feed your family, to take your kids on vacation, if that was something that you could afford to do financially. But it was like everybody hated their job. They went to it because they had to or they'd starve to death. And they tried to do it and get through with it as much as possible. And that was sort of it. And now it's like people derive so much of their sense of of worth and their sense of esteem from the jobs that they're doing, from the credentials that they have, that it's it's really just jarring. And I think that there, frankly, are there are elements of truth to both value sets, right? I mean, I think that it's important to really value your work, not just as a means to an end, not just as something that maybe gives you meaning as you move through the day, but as something that is sort of existentially worthwhile and valuable. I think there's something to that. But I also think that to sort of recycle a very well-heeled criticism of the elites, that people tend to care too much about where they went to school, where they went to college, and what they do with their lives. Um, so this sort of like obsession with credentialing, I think, is is one of the things that's really jarring. The flip side of it, and I, I think this maybe will resonate with you especially well because obviously you do very well for yourself in, in, in D.C., you know, when I when I think of what kids or what people worried about vis-a-vis their children back home, it was worrying about whether their kids were going to get into trouble, whether their kids were going to do drugs, whether their kids were going to do okay at school. And when I think about what my current peer group really worries about in the lives of their children, there's an element of credentialing even there, this, this, this you know, people who don't even have kids will talk about how they want their kids to go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford. And I think that attitude can become very self-destructive. And I've seen it from a lot of my peers, you know, kids who grew up in the elites and have sort of are sort of a part of this process of self-replication where I don't think that it's in their benefit. I think that this real preoccupation with where people go to college and the jobs that they have actually starts to become a little bit self-destructive on its own. I think there's something to that. I mean, it's funny. So I'm the son of my father's an immigrant and he came to America through education. And I actually did very, very poorly in school growing up. So it was a, was a <laughs> tremendous disappointment in a very powerful way. But there is a, a difference and I've, I've never quite been able to articulate it between 
the focus on education, which is very woven into at least a certain set of the American experience, so the immigrant American experience and the credentialism that has emerged, probably for young kids, which feels very strange and very much like a offshoot of the adult's own experience. Um, it, it often felt that education is a ticket to a better life versus credentialism as a way to reflect well upon me are very different ideas. I agree. It, it, it strikes me, it's the difference between sort of wanting stability and maybe insurance in your own life that you're going to be able to provide certain things versus really deriving meaning and social status from whatever letters after your name or whatever university you went to. So one of the things that this opens into, and it's something I found very interesting about sort of the back third of the book. So you you end up going to the Marines, which you credit for a lot of the addition of discipline and sort of bringing you into a different strata and into contact with different people. And then you go to Yale Law School. And around this part of the book, there's a real focus in a way I think is valuable on what I think in another context would actually be called microaggressions. And there are a lot of there's a lot of your book that echoes books that are written about experience I think of as more traditionally marginalized, but people just sort of offhandedly saying things that leave you feeling extremely alienated. Ways events are set up to just require a baseline level of knowledge about how to buy a car or which silverware to use, that as soon as you walk into that room, it is clear that that room was not put there for you. And so I'm curious about how you think about that, because that discussion has become a very fraught one. But because in your book, it, it has a different valence, I think it's a little bit of a less fraught way to discuss it. Yeah, it's it's funny you mention microaggression, because one of the things I didn't write about in the book was when a Marine colonel who was a very high ranking legal official in the Marine Corps came and gave a talk to a small class of students. And I was there with my my then girlfriend and the professor asked this Marine colonel a question and he said, do you find that one of the biggest challenges of your job is talking to these really low educated, low IQ Marines about their legal rights and how do you negotiate that? And the Marine colonel was just horrified and he handled himself very well, sort of stuck up for enlisted Marines, which I felt very proud about. But it occurred to me that me sitting there as a formerly enlisted Marine, that that was like the textbook definition of a microaggression. But it was really the first time that something like that had happened. It was the first time that I was aware of it in the moment, that it would have been called something like a microaggression. And I turned to my wife, and this is sort of me being a classic, emotionally obtuse person. And I just said, you know, I, I would have raised my hand and complained about that professor committing a microaggression, but I decided to just act like an adult. And, you know, I think my wife pushed back a little bit and, and, and it was sort of, you know, like, don't necessarily dismiss these experiences because they can actually affect you. You should at least be aware of them and try to deal with them. And I think there's, of course, this conflict between, and I'm sure that a, a lot of, you know, black Americans who have been in similar environments would, would agree with me, that there's this conflict between sort of recognizing something's going on and feeling overwhelmed or defeated by what's going on. And partially just because of who my grandma was, I think I'm always inclined when things like this happen to sort of say, well, it happened, can't complain about it now, better deal with it. And 
there is value to recognizing these emotionally fraught experiences when they happen. But I also do worry, in my own life at least, that sort of constantly recognizing the way in which my environment is sort of unfamiliar to me can itself become self-defeating. And so I try to fight against that in myself, though that's not necessarily the advice I'd give to anybody else. That's a very fascinating decision to have to make and and a hard one because one of the things I think is so interesting about the book and you reference this I think a bit obliquely throughout our conversation about having to understand what the what the experience is like here to even be able to begin making policy that would be valuable for it is the way you lay out what it took to go from your hometown and to go from your upbringing to where you are now it's not a story of policy and it's not a story of people trying to hold you back, but it is a story of a gap, of a chasm, of a, of a mountain to climb that is a lot more complex than somebody just looking at it from the outside might understand. And I always take, and, and I have trouble with this because, again, these are these are experiences that take place somewhat outside of my own lived experience. And so, you know, I'm a little bit trying to take people's words for it and, and work through it with a kind of introspection. But one of the things that I took from your book and, and have taken from conversations around things like political correctness and microaggressions is that the buildup of these things can be very powerful. And that when you're already having to travel that far and when there's already that much stacked up, adding a little bit more, or as the case might be, beginning to take a bit more out of it, beginning to maybe move the burden of being a little bit more careful onto folks who have a little bit more space in which to work with it, isn't the worst idea in the world. It's definitely interesting. I mean, when you say moving the burden onto the, to folks who have a little bit more space to work with it, do you mean sort of those of us who are doing pretty well for ourselves? Yeah, or I mean, mean I, I, I think around some of this political correctness conversation, for instance, and it's a place where I think I disagree with people, you know, like my friend John Chait. I think of a lot of what is happening as a moving of a burden of a kind of second guessing and a care and a holding your tongue that has traditionally been on marginalized groups and putting it onto more dominant groups. And, and I mean sort of traditionally privileged groups. And I think one of the reasons in which that is valuable, uh, something that I've just been really convinced by over the years, is that there's just a constant set of taxes on people trying to climb into spaces that have not been built for them. And those taxes exist in ways we don't even realize. They're not always existing through discrimination. They're not always even existing through aggression. They're often existing just in the very simple way that the pathway wasn't designed. It did not evolve with these folks in it. And so they're just completely unseen, unintended things that are harder there. And so often if the idea is, hey, you know, think hard about your language, you know, so you are not creating a space that says to women in the room that you're not wanted here. You're not creating spaces as African-Americans or Marines or folks from a poor white community that you're not wanted here. That is a perfectly fine thing to do as opposed to all of that work having to be on folks from these communities to both walk through a, a more difficult path, but also absorb these different sites, also make sure that they're contextualizing all this in the right way as you know an unintended quirk of the tongue, not a, an actual statement about their abilities or about their belonging, that the exhaustion level of that stuff even if it has some excesses, is properly being moved onto folks who it's not the worst thing for them to have to handle it now. Yeah. So I obviously have pretty conflicting feelings about this. And 
It reminds me of a conversation I had with with one of my best friends who I made in law school, but is a black American. And we were having a conversation about the whole microaggression thing. And the, the conclusion that we came to was that whatever the burdens being placed on the dominant group versus the non-dominant group, the perspective that we had is is about this question of sort of psychological or mental toughness. And you know, I, I know how this this sort of often appears to those who obviously have had pretty successful, pretty happy lives and are the dominant group that that they're a little bit uneasy with what I'm about to say. But he and I came to the same conclusion, which is that there may be there's never going to be a social situation where the dominant group really takes on the burden of being the non-dominant group or, or try, tries to sort of share the burden with the non-dominant group. There is always going to be some element of cultural disconnect. And the thing that's most important to me is that those who grow up in those environments who are, you know, the the sort of poor white guy at Yale Law School or the poor black guy at Yale Law School, that we've got to be cognizant, of course, of the ways that people say things that are offensive and they should say fewer things that are offensive. But I also think it's really important to try to build an ethic of mental toughness within those people because life is going to be hard for them no matter what. And I really worry that the conversation around microaggressions, you know, it's never going to hurt the very privileged person. But I think that being constantly worried and constantly on guard about what other people say can itself become mentally destructive. And I worry about that side of it. I worry about the side of it where we we make people a little bit more willing to be overcome by the things that are always going to happen in these social environments. So in other words, I think we have to basically walk a very fine line between counseling the dominant group to be a lot more welcoming and a lot less stupid about the things that they say. But we also have to always preserve that ethic of mental toughness in the kids who are coming from pretty tough environments. Because otherwise, I think that an environment like Yale can really consume somebody. That's an interesting point. So then to, to go back to something you were saying early on, how do you think about making people fear their choices matter more? How do you think about the underlying issue of your book, which is as I understand it, the sort of cultural and historical dimensions of, of social mobility. Your book is not prescriptive, and, a, and I, I don't want to ask you to become overly prescriptive here, but you said a couple of times that something that you're really trying to do is give people a sense of just what needs to be solved in order for these problems to be effectively addressed. So given your work on it, what do you think that, that you've learned or you know that underlies that opinion? Well, one thing I'll say is that obviously to the degree that we can push on these things from a policy perspective, we really should, not just because it makes things easier for kids who grew up like I did, not just because it provides more pathways to the middle class and so forth, but because I, I think there's something very psychologically powerful about the sense that other people are trying 
whether it's your political leaders at the federal or state level, whether it's just mentors in your community, this sense that other people care about you and are trying to help you has been one of the most powerful things that's happened in my life. And so I, I think there's real psychic value to continuing to work on these problems, even if they're very, very difficult to solve. So I'll, I'll say that. You know, the, the other side of this is that I think it's on those of us who, you know, have been fortunate enough to have pretty good lives to live the so-called upwardly mobile life to constantly be preaching about the value of the things that really worked in our lives. And I, I think there's something, you know, the president gets a lot of criticism in left of center circles for you know, the way that he talks about not just the structural barriers facing African-Americans, but he does also talk about the, the ways in which black Americans um, should be taking responsibility. And, you know, I, I think that if I brought that message, it would be not necessarily the, the right thing because I'm, I'm not from that community. But I, I do think that there's something to be said that whether you know they're like the president or whether they're religious leaders in a lot of, of, of African-American communities, the people who seem to care the most tend to take the view that these problems are especially complicated and that it's both a structural problem and a problem that these communities have to work on themselves. And I, and I think that that sort of is part of what, what motivated me to write the book is this desire to not just point out the ways that life is especially difficult for kids who grew up like I did, but also to really preach a message of self-reliance to really argue that this, this idea that the entire world is set against us, that our choices don't matter at all is very self-destructive, even though it's partially true. That's obviously a very difficult line to walk, but I think people like me have a responsibility to simultaneously push on policy levers that might help, whether in you know our public comments or in or in our lives as actual actually policymakers, but also to really be ambassadors to our own communities for the idea that our choices still do matter. Because if kids lose that sense, then I think they're in a world of shit. And there's no amount of policy intervention that's going to be able to help a kid who has really given up on himself. Is a message there, and I'm just curious in the way you you think about it, is a message there that your choices really matter? Or is a message there that the set of choices is a lot wider than you think? Are people so disempowered they think sort of whatever they do doesn't matter? Or is it that it's hard to imagine the set of choices that really lead to a dramatically different outcome, an outcome that is outside the boundaries of your town or your state and is bringing you into a social space that you maybe not have, you've maybe not occupied before. Sure, sure. Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both, right? It depends on uh, who the recipient of the message is. But I definitely think that this idea that you're, the possibilities are wider than most people think that they are is important and valuable. And the the way that I think about this, honestly, is as Mamaw, my as my grandma once said to me, you know, be motivated by the fact that the deck is stacked against you. Don't be defeated by it. Like accept that the world is unfair, but take that as an inspiration and a motivation to do as well as you possibly can. And I think that that sort of again that hard nosed self reliance is something that can't really be 
taught except for by people who have been there and have a certain amount of knowledge of what that lack of self-reliance, what that feeling of helplessness really feels like when you're born with it. I'll move here to the the final set of questions we we ask folks on this podcast. The first is, who are some people you disagree with who you try to make sure to read regularly? You've talked a lot here about making sure that you don't become too isolated from from different folks and communities in the country. Who who do you read to sort of open up your boundaries, even though there's a there can be the feeling of oh, that that's not my view at all. <laughs> Right, right. Well, you know, so on politics and policy, I read Vox a lot. I read you and Matt. Thank you. I read a, a lot of Jonathan Chait. And, you know, I, I think like nearly everybody these days, I read a lot of Ta-Nehisi Coates, especially, you know, when it comes to sort of racial politics. He's obviously a, a very important voice on sort of sociology and some of these broader, you know, big picture, not not so much day-to-day political questions. I'm sort of an obsessive consumer of William Julius Wilson and uh, and Robert Putnam. I think both of those guys are, are probably to the left of me on the political spectrum, but I think they're both incredibly valuable and incredibly valuable voices and have influenced my thinking quite a bit. And you know, I, I always think that it's it's useful to sort of read people, um, you know, especially in this very weird political moment for the American right. So I, I, I try to read people, you know, like Laura Ingram, who are much more pro-Trump than I am, um, to try to make sure that I'm I'm not sort of spending too much time in my elite conservative bubble. <laughs> <laughs> and what are putting political opinions aside? What are three books over the years that have that have influenced you, that have mattered to you, and that you would recommend people read? Yeah, so the easiest answer is The Truly Disadvantaged by William Julius Wilson. Read it when I was a teenager, very influential. Um, you know, Coming Apart by by Charles Murray is is another book that's really influenced the way that I think about these issues. And, you know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to pick sort of a weird one and I read it earlier, well I guess last year, and I keep on thinking about it especially in this weird political moment that we live in. And that's The English and Their History by Robert Toombs. And it's just a sort of big picture view of English history that I I, I find somewhat helpful as we live in uncharted political waters. J.D. Vance, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to J.D. Vance. I appreciated and really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did too. Thank you to all of you for tuning in to my producer, A.C. Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and it will be back next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.